Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to From Under the Rubble on the Fleming Foundation. I'm your host, Stephen Heiner, and on this episode, I'm joined by Dr. Thomas Fleming. Dr. Fleming, thanks for joining us. It's always a pleasure. We are recording today's uh, episode in the against the backdrop of a surge in support for the libertarian candidate for president. It seems people uh, have decided they don't want either the red or the blue candidate. So they're going for uh, uh, the third way, uh, option, option number three. So <laughs> there's, a, there's a lot of young people uh, that are enthusiastic about maybe not just this candidate, but libertarianism in general, Dr. Fleming. And it's about time that we settled in to talk about this. So over the years, this is a this is not a new story for you. You've seen young people very enthusiastic about libertarianism, and uh, what um, what can you give us? Can you give us a few regale us with a few of these anecdotes? <laughs> well, I can I can remember first running into libertarians when I was in uh, graduate school, and then later on when I was living in a South Carolina village, and I'd go in back ad- into Charleston and uh, attend actually libertarian meetings. Um, there are um, so the, the the worst of them were always the Randians because they were the least educated and the most self-important. But there are good reasons why people are drawn to uh, not so much the Libertarian Party, which has been pretty much of a joke since its early days, as my old friend Murray Rothbard used to re- re- said it was a, re- a party of. Uh, of uh, losers and grifters. I mean, it was most, you know, just it's party filled with corruption. Uh, but liberal, classical liberal thought of the 19th century, which is the origin of libertarian ideas, uh, it's clear. Uh, it, it's based on firm principles. It encourages moral responsibility, and it's an excellent antidote to the kind of worship of the state that permeates both the Democratic and Republican parties, permeates the conservative movement, uh, and uh, as well as, of course, the left. Now, one of the problems with all these terms, conservative, liberal, left, and right, is that they really don't mean much anymore. And to the extent that they mean anything in America, it's quite different from what it means in Europe. Uh, My friend Thomas Molnar once told me a story of how he helped to arrange a trip uh, in Europe uh, for the National Review staff. And after they met with his friends in Italy, uh, uh, Bill Buckley said to him, your friends, Thomas, uh, they're not conservatives, they're fascists. And Molnar's friends, people like John, uh, uh, Johnny Acamo and, uh, people, Johnny, John Acamo, excuse me, and people like that said, Thomas, your friends are, li- are not conservative, they're liberals. <laughs> so this is all because in the 19th century, liberal meant those people who asserted individual liberty, uh, often at the expense of monarchy, the church, aristocracy, tradition, that everything was based on uh, the the most important thing in society was to liberate the individual from these constraining influences. And, of course, that became, that classical liberalism becomes basically the source of inspiration for the whole libertarian movement, although they take it a bit to uh, a farther extreme. And uh, and for a while it was a main component of the so-called conservative movement, which at its best was liberal. (laughs) 
and at its worst was simply uh, one more corrupt organization. So these, um, there's excitement to living on the fringe as a libertarian. You co- you courting risk and danger. You're outside the mainstream. You're you're being a tough guy. Young men especially are fed up with the compromises and lies and corruption of normal party politics. Are uh, are in, find themselves drawn to this. Uh, libertarianism encourages healthy skepticism about politics and politicians and human motives. I recently watched something I'd seen years ago, and it was uh, Phil Donahue. Uh, someday remind me to tell our listeners about my episode of being on a, on a Phil Donahue show, being interviewed by him. Phil Donahue was interviewing Milton Friedman. Now, never have I seen Phil Donahue look like such an idiot. He he tried. He said, "Well, Doctor Friedman, don't you understand? There are people who are starving and oppressed around the world. Doesn't this ever make you doubt your faith in capitalism and in individual liberty?" Well, Friedman was extremely. Friedman knew what he believed, and he and he explained that uh, Phil's way led to led to politicians being able to bamboozle us into thinking that they knew what was best for us. And so Hitler, Stalin, Mao, this is, this is the tradition of statism. Whereas all the great and creative things, uh, Albert Einstein, Henry Ford, uh, these, are, these, these great inventors and discoverers all, were all uh, pursuing their individual self-interest. And that all of civilization is based on that. Now, it's uh, it, it really is a very attractive argument. And uh, I never met Friedman. We exchanged letters and we had a telephone call. And uh, he's a he's a very fine economic thinker. Uh, and so you could see, and he was right about very many things. So you could see the attraction of uh, of young people looking for easy answers. Well, and you you mentioned young people looking for easy answers, and then I think you came down particularly hard on the Randians. Can you elaborate on that a bit? Well, you know, Ayn Rand is really a hilarious and preposterous character. She was a not terribly successful screenwriter in Hollywood. She was a a, uh, Russian immigrant. She had some of the worst and maudlin uh, notions about uh, fiction and script writing. It's all, you know, strong men and strong women locked in a fervent embrace. It's pretty embarrassing stuff. Read the read the Fountainhead, or or better still, see the movie of the Fountainhead where the poor director was talked into following Rand's ravings fairly literally, and you know, even a fine cast. You know, uh, Gary Cooper, uh, Raymond Massey, and uh, and uh, Patricia Neal, excellent cast, can't save this hilarious movie because <laughs> the movie is true to Ayn Rand. She basically read Nietzsche once in her life and learned about uh, learned about individualism and selfishness and pursuing your own dream, and so concocted out of classical liberal ideas. And also, she ripped off other women writers like Isabel Patterson, and. Uh, and so with with this just sort of mishmash of confused ideas, she created a kind of religion and required her followers, even her closest disciples like Alan Greenspan, 
which, by the way, what a scary thought to think that a leading Randian was once chairman of the Federal Reserve. I mean, it would keep me awake at night sometimes to think that somebody could fall for this nonsense. So she created a cult. And the cult is based on, you know, the theory of self, the, the virtue of selfishness. It's just one sort of silly cliche after another. Murray Rothbard, who was a great pal of mine in it when he was uh, getting on in years, Rothbard would tell me stories about being part of the Randian inner circle. And uh, the time that <clears throat> he was, uh, his wife refused to repudiate Jesus Christ because she was a Christian. Murray was an atheist Jew, but uh, his, uh, Joey was, uh, was, uh, was, a, was a believer. And Ayn Rand stood up and pointed the finger at Joey Rothbard and said, Denounce her, Murray. Renounce her now. You're getting divorced. And Murray, in his inimitable way, he would tell the story. He was very charming. He would say, Come on, Joey. We're getting out of here. This woman is crazy. As indeed she was. Well, you, you mentioned that yeah. some of the uh, in your in, in your in your opening when you talked about how Europeans and and Americans looked at these different terms, I thought it might be helpful to to break apart some of the things that they take for granted or they use in the parlance of our modern age that really uh, are unclear or maybe are untested notions, as you might say, um, yeah. individuals' rights individual rights and the relationship to the state. Can you, yeah. can you speak about that a little bit more? Well, ever since perhaps uh, the late 17th century, and certainly since the 18th century, uh, political thought has focused on two entities and has universalized them and made them universal principles of all social behavior. The one on the one end is the individual who is either free to do what he feels like or else oppressed by uh, something called the state. And the state is, of course, this uh, magnificent, uh, huge enterprise in, in, uh, from, the, from the liberal, libertarian point of view, which exists to oppress individuals. And it's, the state is controlled by, by powerful forces. Now, of course, the state didn't exist until the Renaissance, and uh, this much is at least understood by some political anthropologists. It's a fairly modern uh, invention. That is, a, a government system that, uh, that exists quite apart from the people. It's not the commonwealth, which is the common wheel of, of all the people living within a society. It's not a Greek polis. It's not even the Roman Empire. It's, a, it's, it's as, uh, as uh, Thomas Hobbes called it, you know, it's a mortal god. You could destroy a state, but while the state is alive, it is a god. Now, this, this, this notion, both of these ideas, the, indiv the liberated individual pursuing his own self-interest and the, the state, neither one of these is a universal notion. The, 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 the Greeks and Romans, for example, the Jews of the Old Testament, medieval Christians, have no idea of, this, of the human being as an atom. Interesting, that's the word in modern Greek for individual, atomo, the, the, the atom, the one who is uh, uh, cut off from, from society, and it, it just it sort of exists in, in, in space. Um, these are the, the, the so-called individual, the human person, historically, has always been embedded in deeply into networks of parent and kinship and family and community and religion, 
and it's you you can't really dis, you can't disentangle the individual human person from the social context which makes him who he is. Almost nobody, uh, say, growing up in America today, if you ask them any question about anything, their answers are going to be dictated by what their parents thought, what they heard in school, the latest jingles and commercials they've got on TV, pop music, movies, films, computer games. Their whole mind is made up of what commercial people have basically inserted into it. These aren't individuals. These are ants. And so in the very society in which we, we are constantly talking about how we're individuals, the, the, in, the, the individual, as understood by a classical liberal, the individual is a gentleman. You know, he's a, he's a person with refined intellect, and he's a, he's a, a trained mind. This, is a, this has ceased to exist. So the, the, one of the basic problems with the classical liberal and libertarian outlook is that they think that these historical constructs, the modern state and the modern individual, are universal aspects of, uh, of the human race, and, and they're simply not. And if you go from there, you realize that you can't construct a, uh, a universal philosophy based on a peculiar social construction. The modern, the, our notion of the individual, the Randian notion, or even the Rothbardian notion, it's simply somebody who doesn't exist now. There are no such people today, and and basically have never really existed. In fact, well, speaking, I suppose, of things that don't exist. But what about the Christian libertarian, Dr. Fleming? Uh, these are the sorts of people I ran into the one time that I went to Acton University over uh, a summer um, for a few days. Uh, there's a lot of these people professing to adhere to uh, a sort of Christian libertarianism. Can you, can you tell us what that is? Well, first of all, uh, <clears throat> it's a contradiction in terms. The, the poor kids who embrace this, you know, are confused because on the one level they think they're Christians or want to be Christians or following the religion of their families, but on the other hand they're drawn to libertarian theory and uh, often simply for good reasons, often because they see how corrupt the political system is, they realize that they're going to have to work their whole life in order to, to give money to, to people who don't work. Uh, there's a massive wealth transfer scam going on in the United States. About these subjects, the libertarians are all perfectly correct. You know, there's, there's, they're, they're on the right track. And Milton Friedman and uh, Friedrich von Hayek and and uh, all of these, and uh, Rothbard himself, all of these people really had an excellent critique about the scam of, uh, of wealth transfer, which is dominant. But there is no consistency between a Christ, the, the Christian faith, which tells you that greed is evil, and if that St. Paul equates greed, that the desire for money, the desire to have more, the Greek is pleonexia, it's not just greed is a more pejorative word. Just ha always having to increase your wealth. If that is your obsession, as it is, say, the obsession of Warren Buffett and, and uh, Steve Forbes or all, all, of these, uh, all of these great plutocratic leaders in America, if that is the basis of your, of your life and your existence, you are, in, in St. Paul's view, you are like a sodomite because you have unnatural desires that has distorted your perception and you become evil. Uh, 
So you can you simply the 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 the, the root thing that really most distinguishes. Christian ethics from the ethics of, uh, of all other religions, virtually. You can find a lot of overlap, but the Christian notion of charity, uh, Christian love for, uh, for fellow Christians, and the need to practice not just almsgiving, but, but, the, but this whole notion that we, we, part of our life must be devoted to, to making the lives of the people around us better, and especially the people we know and the people we're attached to, <clears throat> this, is, uh, this is simply incompatible with a, with a liberal or libertarian ethic. Lord Acton, of course, tried to combine. He was, a, he was a serious Catholic on the one hand, he was a great liberal on the other, and as he once said, <clears throat> as a liberal, I'm a bad Catholic. He at least, and this is why I believe Acton never, you, you mentioned going to the uh, Acton, Lord, uh, Acton Institute Summer School, the reason Acton never finished a good book, never, he had constantly working on all these things, but at the heart of Acton's thought is a contradiction, and he never could, re, he never could decide which side he was on, was he a Catholic or was he a liberal? So the two, uh, and it's not just Catholicism that's incompatible. You can't be a good Southern Baptist and, uh, and, and be a libertarian. Now, the fact is that human beings are complicated. We're all strange people. You know, I've known uh, people who led immoral lives who still admired the virtuous. I've known, you know, every sort of contradictory personality, and I understand that. And it doesn't mean, I'm not arguing that, Christians who think they're libertarian are going to hell because they think bad thoughts. Uh, if 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 thinking good, th- if having a good brain, being able to think through contradictions were a prerequisite for entering into the kingdom of heaven, it would be a mighty lonely place, because most of us are, live with co- constantly with contradiction. But it, it has to be said that there are few more stark contradictions, more puzzling, more paradoxical than the claim that you could be a Christian libertarian. It's like being, I'm a, I'm a Christian communist, I'm a Christian Marxist, I'm a Christian homosexualist. You know, these things are incompatible. There are plenty of Christians who happen to have homosexual tendencies and sometimes give in to them. But they have to understand that what they're desiring is wrong, in the same way that the philanderer understands he may be wanting to chase his neighbor's wife, and yet he goes to, he goes to church. But these, these two inclinations are in, uh, they're in conflict. And of, co- and, of course, it's up to his pastor or priest to help him work through and resolve this conflict and, and, and live according to Christian precept. And the sa- but the same thing is true of greed. That's true of all these other immoral tendencies. It is something we have to tame and fight. We tame, for example, the, the, our desire for women by getting married. And, and by being faithful husbands or wives, and we tame greed by living, by living, uh, by living with thrift, by li- by living honorably with uh, with our neighbors and with people we work with, with our colleagues. There is a, there's an ethical way of maintaining your wealth and even increasing it. But if but if maintaining and increasing wealth becomes the be all and end all of your existence, well, and I'm sorry, but you have devoted yourself to a god called Mammon. Not to the not to the uh, the God of our fathers. Hmm. 
you, you've been speaking I know this. It's hard to you, Stephen, as an aspiring young uh, uh, entrepreneurial businessman. <laughs> no, I, I think, I, I suppose at the heart of anyone who's working within the, however you want to call it, the Act, Actonites like to call it the free enterprise system, whatever that means. But yeah. I think the those of us who, who are entrepreneurial are always realizing that we are having to impose our Christian values upon the system because the system doesn't itself encourage it, right? So you have people like uh, John Mackey, who's the CEO of Whole Foods, coming out with a book called Conscious Capitalism, which in another yeah. age was called Rerum Navarum. Um, so you, yeah. have to put, you have to put your values onto the system because the system doesn't necessarily encourage you to do it. In fact, in some ways, the system discourages you from doing that. So I wouldn't say I'm disheartened uh, by hearing what you have to say, but I, I do think that uh, it's important to keep putting putting your ideals in front of you and not be, be caught in, as you say, Acton's sort uh, mode of, of uh, not being able to make up his mind and being, being stuck. Now, you've been teaching yeah, a lot about... Yeah, you know, about- it's also, there are some uh, really essential distinctions that have to be made. For example, um, I, I have uh, tradi- traditional Catholic friends who read too much into 19th century papal, papal encyclicals like Rerum Novarum, uh, and I think they're, they're misinterpreting. The great, the great Christian, the great Catholic tradition has nothing to say against free enterprise. On the contrary, people earning their living by the sweat of their brow and trying to make lives better for their families, there's no, there's no objection to that. Because the, uh, the farmer... The, the, the sheep herder, you know, the artisan, St. Paul making tents for money because he said it was better for him to work than to, than to live off the kindness of the people he was preaching to. And he was very proud of the fact that, you know, he, I'm, a, I'm not a loafer like uh, Peter over there. I'm not going to say anything against him, of course, says Paul, but I earned my own way. So this is, but see, capitalism First financial capitalism, then in, and industrial capitalism, these are modern inventions since the Renaissance, and these are inventions which um, I, I won't engage in, in, in moral abuse of them, but they, but they are capable of great abuse because the capitalist ideal is to make people employees that work for you, and an employee, the very word, as the Marxists know who love this word, an employee is, is you know, the employé. It's, he's employed. He's a tool to be used by other people. The, employ- the employee in a factory isn't making chairs because he's a craftsman. He is screwing in something or stapling something over and over and over because he's no better than a machine. And so these giant capitalist uh, industries, things like uh, Apple or uh, today or, or uh, Microsoft or, or Amazon, these are these are things that that um, for like it or not, they degrade the people who work for them, and and I think one should always draw a distinction between the entrepreneur who may make fifty million dollars, but he's you know he's working on his own with friends and colleagues, and of course you hire people, 
But the vast, you know, Ford, Ford Motor Company or, or Chevrolet or General Motors, these huge companies, basically more or less enslave the people that work for them. And some of, some of the people who created these businesses, Henry Ford himself, had a conscience and worked very hard to imp- improve the lives of his workers. But it is no accident that, that the labor movement and socialism began in the 19th century as workers who had been uprooted from the countryside and from traditional crafts had been more or less enslaved. It's interesting because we're we're seeing a real sea change now in the way that people are employed with all all the different uh, businesses that are out now. You have things like Airbnb or Uber, which blur the line that was established a long time ago, a long time ago, 150, 200 years ago in U.S. labor law, but the idea of employee or contractor. And now you have this sort of blending, and, and countries like Germany and Canada have already dealt with, started to deal with this in their own legislation. But there's there's that binary idea. You're an employee, you have no rights, I will dictate to you what it's going to be. You're a contractor, you're out on your own, uh, in the wilderness, you're a rugged individualist, and and realistically, the Christian the Christian way is is as usual in the middle, somewhere between yeah. these two these two poles. And and you've been speaking about some of the practical matters. So let's 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 come down from theory, get down into the dirt with with the practical things. Do do we have anything good to say about libertarianism on the practical level? On 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 the practical level, um, if if. Uh, if you could get a libertarian candidate who was honest and would not sell out his constituency, um, I, because, you know, Paul Ryan basically, Paul Ryan talks libertarian and then votes with the Obama administration, so he's proved his utter worthlessness. And uh, the fact that uh, Mr. Trump and Mr. Ryan are not on good terms, or at least until very recently, perhaps they're mending it, is to me a very good sign uh, for Trump. But um, their policy prescriptions, philosophy aside, because they have a trivializing, wicked philosophy, but as for policy, I'm with them 90% of the way, because the government is a problem today. It's not part. It's not a solution. Government is robbing my family, you know, and and your family, and everybody's family. Everybody who works for a living and produces something is being drained dry by an oppressive government that takes huge or system of series of governments that take away fifty, sixty, seventy percent of your income if you if you add it all, and give it essentially to people who aren't working. They they transfer privileges. The whole affirmative action system means that I get taxed to support a government that then will punish my children for having European background and white skin. Now, this is, this is wicked. This isn't just a uh, uh, misguided policy. And then they use our money to, to, to indoctrinate our children into every form of perversity and vice and to rebel against whatever wholesome teaching they might have got from their family, uh, friends, and church. So if a, let's say a libertarian candidate I used to know some of them. I remember uh, what was his name, Maru, who, who's dead now. When he was, came, he came to live here in Rockford. Actually, I used to go out and have drinks with him. If you, Do you know the current guy, like, Gary Johnson. 
I don't know much about him. Okay. But let's just say they believe what they say they believe. If you could elect such a person, uh, you know, until they actually got rid of the U.S. military and uh, uh, and other <laughs> a few other and you know privatized executions, there are some really pretty wacky things which they believe. But essentially, as what I, I once uh, struck a deal with uh, with Rothbard, we shook hands on it. I said, Murray, I agree with ninety percent of what you want to do in downsizing and eliminating government. And by the way, I talked him into, uh, into the position that we had to defend our border or else we would be overrun by, by uh, aliens seeking American welfare. So he, he, on a pragmatic level, he was even willing to enforce the border. I said, now there will come a time after we have won 90% of what you want, then we can quarrel. <laughs> but until then, it's uh, let's just shake hands and go forward. And, uh, of course, Rothbard was, unlike most libertarians, was, was a brilliant and educated and, and well-read person and always open to new ideas. It, it made his followers go crazy because he was almost, he was a cult leader almost. He was so, so adored. And, uh, and Murray would, was capable, even in the last years of his life, capable of seeing something in a new light. If he read a book or studied some historical period or had a conversation, and he started calling himself a conservative because he believed in a social order. He also believed, and he believed that Christianity was a good thing, though he had not one particle of faith. But he thought he could see how it had been a force for good in history, and he wanted to join with people who were morally decent and uh, in, in, a, in a coalition. Now, there are, and there are, there are plenty of, uh, of other libertarians like this, to, to, of course, to the extent they want to promote a, uh, an eth- ethical virtue there, but perhaps betraying the libertarian creed. But on a practical level, uh, especially in local government, it would be great to have a libertarian mayor and town council. It'd be great to have a libertarian government because, first of all, they could never achieve more than 10% of what they want. But even even that little bit, if Ronald Reagan had held, you know, because he was essentially, the best parts of Reagan were classical liberal slash libertarian. If Reagan had not been co-opted by the Bush machine, and by the Republican Party, maybe he would have actually cut the size of government instead of simply slowing the growth rate. I mean, his, his, uh, the eight years of Reagan really accomplished very little. But if he had been more radical as a, as a, as a classical liberal or libertarian, he might have done much more. And um, so I, 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 I respect libertarian politicians. I don't necessarily respect sometimes what goes on in their movement or their party. But, uh, but their, their basic pragmatic s- policies would be very wholesome and very useful for this country, even to start to dabble with. Now, you've obviously mentioned Murray Rothbard, and we'll come back to him a little later when we talk about the Randolph Club and other initiatives like that. But can, can, you, can you do some other name dropping for us, Dr. Fleming, and, and share some impressions uh, of, of some other prominent libertarians, people like Lou Rockwell, that sort of, that sort of thing? Yeah, Rockwell, um, I knew Lou pretty well, and, um, you know, I haven't seen him in, in years. Uh, Lou is very clever, very glib. You know, he's a, he was essentially a, a flack, you know, a PR agent, and he's very good at distilling complicated ideas 
into effective formulas for, uh, for use in a political campaign or running an organization. When Murray was alive, Lou was an obedient and faithful servant of Murray, and I think he did a lot of good. I think after Rothbard died, uh, he, he uh, lost his way, perhaps, but I, I don't want to speak harshly because I frankly don't follow him. Um, the, uh, of the Rothbardians, there were several interesting people, like uh, David Gordon, who is a very well-trained philosopher, a very acute mind. Anytime I've ever uh, bounced ideas off him, I used to talk to him about once a week for an hour or so when I was working on one of my books, because I'd want to see, well, what, what would be the, this philosophical or that philosophical school's response to, to my argument? And he would give me tons of bibliography. And I understood now why his libertarian pals called him the library, because while other people go to a library, the, the followers of Rothbard and Mises simply called David Gordon because he uh, had read so much. Hans Hermann Hoppe is an is a eccentric character. And, uh, and there are a lot of holes in his thought, but, you know, just to have a monarchist libertarian is, uh, is sort of amusing in, in itself. In this, he very much follows in the footsteps of my old friend Eric von kunelt Dean, who was a classical liberal on the one hand, but, a, but an Austrian monarchist on the other. And, uh, but Hoppe has, uh, has original ideas. His work on uh, time preference and why uh, democracy uh, encourages a short-time preference among politicians and encourages them to loot the country in a, as rapidly as possible, whereas in a monarchy, you invested, it's, the country is an investment for you and your family, and so you want to take care of it. I mean, all of, uh, a lot of Hoppus' arguments against democracy uh, are, uh, are original, and brilliant. Sometimes they're a little off the wall, but that's what uh, a lot of political theory should be. It should be t testing, uh, testing outra outrageous notions. And uh, Ralph Rako was a fine historian. I used to know a lot of these people and spend a lot of time with them. They were charming people to know and uh, and quite brilliant. The um, I don't the younger crowd. I don't. They tend to be a little bit more. Um, I don't know, sort of knee-jerk movement followers. That's that's true of uh, that's true of conservatives as well. But uh, but the grand old men of uh, and 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 I mentioned Friedman earlier. The grand old men of uh, American libertarianism, going back to say Albert J. Nock, even the, the, these made a very positive contribution to uh, American political thought. So. I mentioned the Randolph Club. Uh, maybe Pat Buchanan campaigns would be would be lumped in here. Can you talk about some of the positive interactions and outcomes you saw from these initiatives? Working, let's say, yeah, uh, it helping was, out with um, Pat Buchanan campaigns, that kind of thing. It was uh, pretty. It, it was pretty exciting for a while. Um, the Rothbard and his friends had become Chronicles readers, which I didn't know. And Murray wrote me a long letter because they especially approved of my cautious anti-imperialist approach to American foreign policy. Because one of the things which classical liberals mostly advocate, and libertarians almost all, is policies of non-aggression. Now, they go too far because uh, you know, human beings are human beings, and we're c consumed by our <laughs> sinful desire to take other people's property. But um, they, they were essentially, they followed in the America First tradition of John Flynn and, uh, and uh, of course, uh, uh, 
Charles Lindbergh and uh, the and the other l- leaders of the America First movement of the early 1940s. And so they were. Uh, Rothbard had been uh, had been drawn to the left as a kind of anti, in the anti-war, anti-Vietnam War period, uh, but he had sort of grown out of that and understood that after all, communism is an ultimate form of statism, and that we do have to resist, you know, communist aggression. But still, as the Cold War came to an end, and there was no sign of American imperialism coming to an end. In fact, it was ramping up. Uh, this became the initial basis for our collaboration. That is, that we were both opposed to uh, um, America's imperial adventures, especially in the Middle East. And uh, so there, we and we had a, an influ- We were joined by people like Sam Francis at the Washington Times, who was at that point my uh, Washington editor for Chronicles, Clyde Wilson, and a number of others. And so we had a kind of multifaceted group. We had Southern agrarian types like uh, Mel Bradford and his disciples. We had radical libertarians, and we had, uh, uh, and even Sam Francis, who was a, a nationalist, but thought that uh, U.S. imperialism was very much against uh, our <clears throat> our national interest. And so all of this uh, fed into the mind of a person who had been reading Chronicles for decades by then, and that was Pat Buchanan. Buchanan, you know, starts out life as a pretty conventional Republican on the conservative side, you know, but he goes from being a Nixonian to a Reaganite, but, you know, essentially supporting what libertarians like to call the war party. Uh, Buchanan had not seen any wars he didn't approve of. And, but uh, the influence of this coalition, which took, uh, took a tangible form when we created the John Randolph Club, uh, this this coalition had a really, I think, converted Buchanan from what he was to what he still is today. Which is what, Dr. Putney? <laughs> I don't read many of Pat's columns, but he is pretty much maintained. I, I regard him as one of Sam French's uh, uh, most important disciples, because most of what uh, Pat has to say that sounds original is uh, comes from Sam or one of Sam's uh, friends or colleagues, but you know, Lou and Murray campaigned very hard for uh, for Pat. There, there was a during the during his first campaign. Later on, I think Lou parted company with him and started calling him because uh, because of Pat's views of uh, uh, on trade. And uh, and he was denounced as a as a protectionist, and of course uh, Pat's views on trade come again uh, from from Sam Francis, uh, not from the Republican mainstream, where they still they're still the the thing they really hate about Trump is his views on trade on immigration, because for the Republican Party it's important to have an open border so we get lots of undocumented aliens who uh, will work for next to nothing. And it's important to have free trade so that multinational business interests can can loot the United States and hide their money uh, anywhere they want to, whether in, in China or Venezuela. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter where they go, because as far as they're concerned, nation states as uh, nation states have no right to exist. The nation state is finished, as as uh, as the editor of the Wall Street Journal told our friend Peter Brimelow on one occasion. So the the whole Wall Street Journal Republican Party mentality is one that denies any authenticity or ethical validity to nations or communities or, frankly, even families. 
these are these are tremendous people to be de- out there defending uh, marriage when they can't they have no understanding of the subject or or belief in it whatsoever. Uh, my my feeling from you, Doctor Fleming, going back to read reading some of your old older columns and, and chronicles, and from speaking with you briefly about this, that Buchanan's major flaw was ever thinking that he was going to get the Republican nomination. A- am I am I reading your? Oh yeah, your that's absolutely. I I, were, I was sat them on more than one occasion. And said, you do understand, Pat, that the purpose of your campaign is to create an alternative political movement that will outlast you. And uh, that your and but he and his wife and sister seriously believed that he had a chance. I once told him, I don't think he liked hearing this. I said, Pat, you want to reform the Republican Party. The last person who tried that was James Garfield. And he was shot down in a train station by somebody who declared, I am a Republican stalwart, and bang, shot, shot Garfield. I said, they'll, they'll knock you off in a minute uh, if, if they think you really have a chance. The fact that they didn't, you know, I, I feel quite sure that, uh, that uh, the, uh, the allegation made by the wife of John Mitchell and a number of journalists that the Nixon administration were the ones who had Wallace shot, that, that, has, that has every probability about it because Wallace was a threat to the, uh, to the uh, Republican Party and to Nixon's chance at a second term. Jack Nelson, from the, uh, who was a reporter from the Los Angeles Times, even noted there's a picture of, of uh, Wallace's would-be assassin, Arthur Bremer. There's a picture of him standing at a, ra- a Wallace rally in uh, in Milwaukee, next to somebody who, if it is not, um, if it is not the uh, the uh, FBI agent who was uh, part of the Watergate group, then it's his twin brother, uh, Gordon mm. Liddy. Gordon Liddy. So, but whatever, whatever, whatever actually happened in that? I mean, political parties, you know, they're in it for bit. They're ta- we're talking about trillions of dollars that are involved in this for them and their cronies in the in the uh, in the defense industries, and but in every industry, there's no there's no there's no big business that isn't involved in government at some level in the United States now. It's very cozy. It's very much. It's not just crony capitalism. It's state capitalism. It's it's hardly distinguishable from a so- any soft Marxist state. But uh, uh, so the fact that they all they did is is make fun of Buchanan and demonize him and try to drive him out of the party, but they didn't try to eliminate him. That tells you that there was never uh, a chance of him winning. Hmm. I, I regard I'm surprised that nobody's made an effort on uh, against Trump. Either they don't think he can win, or um, or maybe the, maybe the party's gone soft. But Trump is certainly a great threat. To the Republican establishment, I think their current effort is that they're going to co-opt him, and they may well do that. You've, you've offered over over the last part of this episode some pleasant recollections, um, but I think when if I bring up libertarian, so I'm someone who doesn't know Dr. Fleming. I come up to you at a cocktail party or at a dinner, and I I mention to you some enthusiasm for libertarian ideas that. I'm I'm all, I'm going to get uh, noises and and looks of disapproval. Uh, so for all of your collaboration and working with some libertarians, uh, it might be said, Doctor Fleming, you still look at libertarian with a jaundiced eye, maybe, maybe two jaundiced eyes. 
Uh, Too jaundiced. Can you, can I, wa- you... I discovered, well, you know, um, R- Russell Kirk, who was always quoting uh, Burke uh, that they were chirping sectaries, uh, Russell told me uh, to stay away from them, that, that, that libertarian... Now, he had silly reasons, like Murray had been on the left on the, in the Vietnam War, but the truth is that Russell was on the left in the Vietnam... He, he did not approve that war, just kept his mouth shut. But, um, and and that's, that, that, that's true of a lot of people. I think Russell Kirk was closer to Gene McCarthy in many respects than pro- virtually any uh, politician of our time. McCarthy thought the war was the important issue, so he, he joined the left, whereas Russell thought preserving civilization was the issue, so he swallowed, swallowed hard and defended capitalism. But uh, these are, again, life, life, we were forced to live with these, with these contradictions. But one, one of the things that both Russell and, uh, and Jim McClellan, who was a longtime conservative and, and uh, wrote things with Russell and with uh, Mel Bradford, McClellan just said, you can't work with these people. Because of their ethic of individualism, they can't be loyal. And that is certainly my observation of many of them. And uh, not not Rothbard. Rothbard, I found absolutely truthful and honest and loyal. But many of his followers and supporters, some of them quite prominent, were not were not reliable. And in a pinch, um, one of them, in fact, it was Hans Hoppe, a man whose uh, brain I admire. But Hoppe, at one of our Randolph Club meetings, uh, described Sam as a social nationalist, or should I say, national socialist. You can't. I, I made it. I was president of the club, and I said uh, at, at my closing speech that this is not how you preserve an alliance. You have people from the Wall Street Journal and on the far and people from the far left sitting in the audience, and what they see is prominent libertarian right winger described Sam Francis as a Nazi. I said this is this is simply unacceptable behavior. If we're going to form an alliance. We uh, we can't do this. We have to we have to swallow some of these things, and uh, that was that's what uh, drove the libertarians out of the uh, of the Randolph Club. It was unfortunate. One of their leaders, uh, one of the, one of their big funders, Bert Blummer, now dead, he came up to me and he said uh, he said he was sorry. He said, but with the loss of Murray, they no longer had a brilliant and original person who could. Uh, who could uh, who could sort of engage in these constructive debates, and this is the trouble with it. It's not just so much a trouble of uh, of, of uh, libertarianism. It's the trouble of radical political ideological movements of all types on the left and right. They always fission. They always are dividing. They're always drawing lines. This is the litmus test. You must agree with me 100% on this. If you don't, I'm reading you out of the party. And uh, it's a very ineffective way to, to, to uh, accomplish practical change in the real world. The, the Randolph Club was begun as a debating society between uh, liber- libertarian and traditional conservative thinking, and uh, we were quite successful for some time. Uh, We got along, we avoided uh, personal aspersions, and we we would seek common ground on issues while while obviously disagreeing on a lot of basic principles. Uh, Rothbard came came very much in our direction. He became very fond of traditional Southern 
thinking and uh, was very fond of, uh, for example, the memory of Mel Bradford. Mel had, uh, in fact, advised me that uh, Rothbard was somebody I could deal with, that he was an honorable person, and that, that, that meant a great deal. Unfortunately, as uh, when Murray died and circumstances began changing, I think uh, some of our libertarian friends found it uh, necessary to retreat into the uh, into the libertarian movement, into the ghetto, so to speak, where they could preserve their base and not be challenged by uh, alien ideas. And they got very uncomfortable. They were, of course, very angry with Pat Buchanan because of his views on trade and protectionism. They they, uh, applied, they knew that Sam Francis was responsible for this. They started uh, criticizing Sam, and when uh, Hans Hoppe accused him of being a uh, a national socialist uh, in in a public address, I explained that this was not a way that we could maintain an alliance, that we had to learn to accept the fact that we had severe disagreements, but that we could have lively debates without getting personal. Uh, I remained on uh, pretty good terms with many of them over the years. Uh, I don't see them very much because we don't, uh, we, we didn't do business anymore. The death of Rothbard really meant the loss of a, a, a critical and creative genius that they couldn't replace. And uh, and so it, it's pretty much brought this collaboration to an end. I uh, a lot of conservatives told me I, that they t- that they said I told you so. You can't work with these people, and to some extent they're right. But uh, we did have some great moments, and uh, and I'll just mean personally. We really opened a lot of doors. We we uh, we. Uh, I can remember when the, when National Public Radio did a whole segment on the America First movement uh, because it was the 50th anniversary. Anniversary of uh, of Pearl Harbor, and they um, and they they borrowed everybody I'd used in a in a Chronicles issue that that is they they'd interviewed them. I mean we were having we were being we were being written up and attacked in places like the Nation and the New Republic because it was this combination of people arguing for radical reduction in the power of government while affirming uh, traditional moral, social, and cultural traditions. This uh, Jean Genovese, who was just beginning to recover from his Marxism, uh, Jean wrote, I think, of the New Republic that that we constituted a a real threat to the way to the way things are in the American regime, and I don't think that would have been possible without strong cooperation and collaboration of our libertarian friends. It's too bad. All good things come to an end, and the in the great words of uh, Robert Frost, nothing gold can stay. And uh, life is not static, and one has to move on. Well, we have to move on toward the end of our episode, Dr. Fleming. And to end, I'd like to to cap us with a a practical note. If we are running into libertarians, whether it's in person or in email or or anywhere in, in social media, what are one or two or three questions that we can we can ask them to sort of pattern interrupt them from repeating their their nostrums that, that that will really get to the root of the challenges that you have with libertarianism and that we should have yeah i find that uh and i i've of course both in person and in debates and on radio interviews and uh and on websites i've i've run into these people often 
And again, it's not like I, I could carry on days of argument with somebody like Hans Hoppe. We wouldn't agree, but it, we could, but it would be a lot of uh, fencing. With your knee-jerk, lower-level libertarians, they, they repeat the same platitudes over and over. And I think that one of the first things is to be nice to them. I mean, you, you open up by saying, look, look, we, we agree that government is much too big and it's distorting the economy. It's stripping us of our, our sense of identity, our privileges. But tell me, when you talk about individual rights, I don't know what either one of those words mean, individual and right, and why you think they exist. They said, what do you mean? Of course they exist. I'm an, I'm an individual. I, I look at me. And I said, no, what I see is somebody who was shaped by his family and friends and, and his university training and the books he's read. I see somebody who is 99.99999% a product of the society he lives in. So exactly who do, and when you say rights, where do these rights come from? Did, uh, did, did Adam and Eve pick them up off the floor in the Garden of Eden? I mean, I don't know anything about rights. Plato doesn't understand anything about rights. Aristotle doesn't know anything about rights. People in Central Africa or, or distant China, they don't know anything about rights. How is it we all have rights that we never knew we had? I mean, what are you, like the government? You get to invite the right of transsexuals that, that transcends everything else? And really, they don't. I've never found a libertarian who could say where rights come from because they're a logical construction. If they belong to one school, they'll start talking about the social contract. I'll say, look, look why, is, why is your myth better than my myth? My myth is Adam and Eve in the garden. Why do, why do you think that there was once upon a time primitive people who were killing each other, and so they sat down and shook hands and created society in, in which people have rights? I, you know, nobody believes that. No, no serious person who studies human history or anthropology believes one word of what Jeremy Bentham, a great liberal, once described as nonsense on stilts. So this whole business, so I think you have to be very polite, say, look, I'm happy to work together with you. We both understand how evil our government is. We want to reduce it, want to get it out of our lives. But, you know, you, you believe in stuff that are, that are that they're like mythical creatures, like the chimera or the gorgon. I've never met a right. I don't know what it would look like if I found it. They don't know what to say. I think that's a great way for us to end, Dr. Fleming. Uh, as always, thanks for your time. We want to remind our, our listeners that if you have any questions about anything you heard on today's episode, you can feel free and unconstrained uh, in emailing thomas at Fleming.foundation. We want to remind you that From Under the Rubble is a production of the Fleming Foundation. All rights are reserved, and any duplication without explicit written permission is forbidden. Sorry to uh, trample on your, your rights of the individual there. To obtain permission, oh, they don't write believe in intellectual property rights, by the way, except if it happens to be their book. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Uh, to obtain permission uh, for these rights, uh, please write to James at Fleming.Foundation. As always, thanks to our Golden Charter members who we produce these podcasts for and who ensure that they can be produced in the first place. I want to thank Dr. Fleming for his time. And until next time, on behalf of the Foundation, make the most of a dark age. <laughs>